listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 183. This week, we're going to talk about labor in Asia with guests from the Labor Notes Asia Conference, discussing everything from the ongoing strikes in Hong Kong to supply chain organizing around the world. But first, the news. Gig economy workers have had enough of constantly changing pay models and companies pocketing their tips, and this week on the West Coast, they're kicking off four days of action titled Raise Days. On Thursday, the actions began with a visit to Postmates headquarters, apparently in a WeWork building because the new economy is a snake eating its own tail, in Bellevue, Washington. Workers brought letters and peanuts, because the jobs pay peanuts, to try to give to the company's leadership, but were turned away at the door. Workers were also planning to hit the headquarters of Instacart, Postmates, and DoorDash in San Francisco as of this recording. The Pay Up campaign, with the excellent website address payup.wtf, is calling for a floor of $15 an hour after expenses for gig workers, with tips as an extra not added to the base rate by the companies as they have been at DoorDash and elsewhere. They are also calling for transparency so that workers know what and how and why they're getting paid what they are. Workers have already pressured Instacart into reversing its tipping policy, where tips were counted towards the workers' minimum pay, and Amazon, too, had said it would not apply this policy to drivers' tips. DoorDash has also come under fire and said it will stop pocketing tips, but the campaign is not ready to slow down quite yet. So the raise days will continue over the weekend as workers speak to elected officials, reach out to customers at corporate partners of the gig companies, and hold online actions. We will hopefully bring you updates from this campaign very soon. And if you're a gig worker involved in this organizing, you can reach us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or hashtag belabored. AT&T workers in nine states across the southeast were on strike in late August, leading a total of 20,000 workers to stay off the job for about a week as their union, CWA District 3, was locked in tough negotiations with the company. Their contract had expired in early August, and the union had filed an unfair labor practices charge against AT&T, alleging that the company was not bargaining in good faith. The action ended on August 27th after CWA ordered the strike to be shut down and then returned to the bargaining table after receiving some support from various presidential candidates. And a few days later, the union reemerged with an announcement about a tentative agreement. That includes, among other things, a five-year contract with a 13.25% wage hike and stronger job security provisions for core employees. They also held the line on their health care costs and pushed back the company's efforts to cut back on benefits. AT&T has been the target of quite a few labor conflicts in recent years, including a massive 35,000-strong strike of call center and retail workers for AT&T Wireless in 2017. You'd think that for a company that nets about $170 billion in revenues annually and got a gigantic tax break from Trump to boot, they wouldn't have so much trouble treating their workers decently. Bernie Sanders made precisely this point when he spoke to a crowd of strikers in Louisville, Kentucky. Here's a clip from his speech on August 25th aptly timed to coincide with his workplace democracy plan, a major program to bolster the right to organize, raise standards for wages and working conditions, and make it easier to unionize around the country. And it is an honor, true honor, for me to be with you today. As you are standing up against the kind of greed that is destroying the working class of this country. The American people are sick and tired of seeing companies like AT&T make $19 billion in profit, pay their CEO some $29 million in total compensation, and then ship American jobs abroad 
to low-wage countries. They are sick and tired of putting the squeeze on working families. American people are tired of a Congress that ignores workers and gives huge tax breaks to billionaires. They are tired of a Congress that ignores the health care crisis in this country but tolerates the greed of the 1%. So what we are here today to say to AT&T, sit down at the negotiating table, bargain a fair and decent contract for your employees. What we are saying to AT&T, stop sending jobs abroad. You said, you said that after Trump gave you a huge tax break, you'd be reinvesting in America. You lie. here in Kentucky and all over the South. But I want you to know that millions of American workers are standing with you today. Because of what you are going through is exactly what they are going through. That was Bernie Sanders speaking in Louisville, Kentucky to strikers with AT&T. I met Chucky Dennison in Lordstown, Ohio, where the Lordstown GM plant, where he'd spent years of his life, shut down. He was one of the workers who was tirelessly organizing in the community to call for GM to reopen the plant, and now he's taking his fight on the road. I spoke to him by phone from Peru, Indiana, where he's occupying the land outside of another plant scheduled to be shut down. So tell us where you are right now and why you are there. Uh, So we're uh, in Peru, Indiana. Uh, It is Schneider Electric. It's the old Square D factory. Uh, It's a 113-year-old factory. Um, Peru is about a population of 11,000, um, not, not too much around, uh, Peru. Uh, so the community here, uh, the people either work here, uh, retired from here or, uh, the family members work here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they are closing, uh, the factory, yeah. another federal contractor, um, good paying jobs. Um, and 70% of that work is going to Monterey, Mexico to exploit workers in Mexico. Uh, 15% is going to South Carolina. And the other 15% is going to El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current plant manager here um, is the plant manager down in El Paso who came here to shut this plant down um, to take 15% of these jobs and equipment down to El Paso. And so we are here to um, rally the community and the uh, membership um, to stand up and demand that they will not move this plant. And so this is just one stop of a few that you've been making recently um, in similar situations, right? Uh, So, yeah, we've been participating in, like, strike lines and uh, traveling around. Um, and this is how we actually connected with the Fighting Machinist Union, uh, was in Valpo at their strike line. And they were wanting to get involved. Uh, they wanted to fight back. Um, and they appointed someone um, to work with us, the president did, of this local union. Um, so we had read some articles in the newspaper, and the mayor of Peru 
um, the article that we read, he was uh, a huge advocate for the workers here mm -hmm. um, because of the structure in the community this will do. Yeah. Um, so we called ahead of time and made an appointment to meet with the mayor. Um, so we were going to meet with the mayor on Wednesday and then our meeting with the union official on Thursday. Uh, that A few days before that, the union official backed out. And so then we got the president on board to meet with us. So we were really excited. Mm -hmm. um, so we came here to Peru. We met with the mayor. Um, kind of told him what we wanted to do. Um, he was all on board. Um, and uh, met with the mayor on Wednesday. Uh, introduced us to the chief of police. And after that meeting, we were just like, wow, I can't believe this just happened. Um, he's on our side, and he wants us here, and um, he wants to rally the community around um, to demand that they uh, will not move his plan, which is scheduled to stay open until, I think, September of 2020, but uh, all the jobs will be gone by January. And uh, after meeting with the mayor, having a good meeting with the mayor and the chief of police, uh, the union, the union uh, president backed off. Tell our listeners a little bit about, you and I met um, around the Lordstown plant, but tell people your history of dealing with plant closures in your life. Yeah, so I started in Dayton um, right out of high school. Uh, it was a brake plant for General Motors, built uh, brake calibers um, for every GM uh, factory in uh, America, assembly plant, and um, even some overseas. Um, that plant closed, and I went to Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, in 08, that plant closed, and I went to Lordstown. Um, so I've dealt with three plant closings in my lifetime, yeah. personally. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked a lot about this sort of around the last election. I guess it's heating up around election season again. But, you know, Trump kind of came in and made a bunch of promises about keeping the plants open, bringing the jobs back to places like Youngstown. And they're not coming back. So tell us, you know, in addition to fighting to stop these individual plant closures, what would you like to see happen in places like where you live and in Peru and, you know, everywhere else where this is happening, where the jobs are going away and the towns are deflating as a result? Yeah, so if Trump cared about uh, the American worker at all, and America, in, period, um, because this is just not about the workers. Again, this is about the community. Everything from the schools uh, to the uh, police departments, the firefighters, the teachers, um, social programs, um, YMCA's, Red Cross, um, everything that holds these communities together um, are under attack um, when the tax base leaves um, because these federal contractors receive these contracts and they shut down these factories, good paying jobs, and they go and exploit workers elsewhere. Um, so what I, I mean, what I would like to see is Trump live up to his word and show the American people that he cares, show the American worker that he cares, and sign an executive order stating if you receive federal contracts, you cannot shut down your factory and ship it to another country to exploit other workers and continue to take our federal uh, tax resources 
and um, devastate these communities. And not only do they did, did they do they get that, they also get you know the huge tax breaks that Trump gave, and they also get twenty uh, percent tax incentives for moving the equipment across the borders. So it's like a it's, it, they they win triple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said some of these jobs are not just they're not just going to Mexico, they're going to South Carolina and Texas too. So they're even when they're staying in the US, they're moving away from where the unions are. Yes, exactly. So they are going to the non-union plants. And so one of the things about this is like these conversations about um jobs and plant closings and especially with Trump, they sort of end up being like, well, we've just got to get rid of people from Mexico and and it turns into this, you know, anti-immigrant language and this sort of competition about the jobs. And the thing that I hear when I talk to you and other workers who have been in these plants is like, they're like, look, we're the Mexican workers are in the same boat as we are. Right. Because the companies are just going to move wherever they think people are cheapest. So how do you think um, we should think about sort of the workers in the U S having solidarity with the workers in Mexico, just like the workers in Indiana and Ohio should have solidarity with the workers in South Carolina and Texas. Yeah, so this is not only an attack on American workers, but this is an attack on workers all over this planet. Um, not only are workers under attack, the communities all over the world are under attack, but the world is under attack. The, the earth we inhabit is under attack. So everything we love is under attack. And we need to stand united across the world and demand that the very few on top will not control our destiny, our kids' destinies, and future generations' destinies because of their disgusting greed. And when we do, there is no doubt in my mind that we will win. I think that's all I got, unless you have anything else you want to share with people. Yes, stand together, talk to your friends, family, your neighbors, your coworkers. Everything you love is on the line right now. We are the turning point, like we a crossroad. We have to stand up and fight back now before it's too late. Corporate uh, security guards come down. They've already um, put barbed wire fence. Now this is before we got here. They put barbed wire all around the fence. They were locking the gate, but I have a bullhorn, <laughs> so. I have been using it every day. And, um, you know, I would say, how dare you lock these workers inside barbed wire fence and lock the gate? Would you lock your spouse in a barbed wire fence and lock the gate? Would you lock your kids in a barbed wire fence and lock the gate? I mean, I was. this was the HR. This was to the security people out here. I mean, we have been having a blast with this security guards. Um, they're treating the people inside like shit, so we are giving them run for their money out here. <laughs> and like, they have called police time and time again. The police come down, shake our hands. Thanks for what you're doing. We've got fire going at night, and so when they come here in the morning, we're out here. Um, when they leave for work, we're out here. We're not going nowhere. And um, it's just great. So, these communities around um, the U.S., um, if, if you know, finding a, 
a mayor like this and a chief of police who understand the devastation that this is going to have on his community. And Peru is definitely a rarer one um, because there's nothing else around. You know, there's a, I think the closest city is Fort Wayne, which is not that big, and that's an hour away. Yeah. Uh, you got Kokomo, which is about an hour away. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, I mean, they don't have any other. You got Brian uh, Steam, and that's the Boilermakers Union, and they have um, joined the fight. They brought a banner down, and it's hanging down here. So it's it's been really cool being able to escalate every day what we do. And, like, so I went around that bullhorn, like, 7 o'clock in the morning, staying 45 inches away from the plant property, mm-hmm. and actually found um, Tony Hartley, who's the plant manager, at his window. And, you know, I'm in that bullhorn screaming, do you have the guts to look the communities in the eye, this community in the eye, and tell them what you're doing? Do you have the guts to tell the teachers why you're dismantling their school? Do you have the guts to look the kids who are there to learn why you're dismantling their education? Do you have the guts to look at the poor and the elder, elderly and the people who depend on public services in this community, what you're doing? We are calling for the arrest of Tony Harley for domestic terrorism. This is nothing short of terrorism. <laughs> And I went around the plant and did this, like, all morning long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, this is just fucking fun. I mean, like, <laughs> being able to do this and the cops not just coming and, like, taking you away. And, you know, because Tony Hartley and Schneider are the ones that need to be taken away. You know, they profited over $2 billion this year alone already. It's like $2.3 billion. They profited. And they're shutting their fucking plant down. And the way, you know, the response inside, it's been great. We've outreached the community by just cooking hot dogs, giving them away. Um, they, and, you know, over a few days, we started building a relationship with these people. And they have brought pizzas. They brought ice. They brought... Uh, you name it, uh, vegetables out of their gardens, and we just keep cooking hot dogs and stuff, and they keep coming back, and it's been awesome. That was Chucky Dennison, and you can find out more about him at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Speaking of the right to organize, the National Labor Relations Board just dealt a body blow to the rights of contracted employees to engage in labor actions on the premises of their work sites. In the case of Bexar County Performing Arts Center Foundation, the NLRB found that a group of symphony musicians could not pass out leaflets at the car park of a performing arts center that the symphony used as its primary venue. The reasoning was that as musicians, they don't really work for the place where they play music, they work for the symphony. Andrew Strom at OnLabor.org explained in an analysis of the case, Quote, the Trump appointees held that the musicians employed by the symphony had no access rights whatsoever at the Tobin Center because they did not work exclusively at that site. The board explained that it could not possibly grant any rights to individuals who work regularly but not exclusively at a site because, quote, regularity is far too imprecise and ambiguous to serve as a reliable indicator of where to draw the line on access rights, 
unquote. You might be wondering where these musicians, who are the regular occupants of this performing arts center, who are an integral part of its programming and artistic community, and a major source of its revenue, where they might pick it, if not at the place where they regularly play music. The board did not get that far in its legal rationale, however. They only argued that the Supreme Court draws a bright line between the rights of employees of a property owner and the workers who simply work on the property but are not employed by the said owner. But as we know in today's world, subcontracting and freelancing arrangements are all too common, and many workers are constantly, exclusively working at a work site that belongs to someone who is not their employer. Think warehouse workers who are hired by staffing agencies at Amazon. Or janitorial workers who clean the same office building every single day but are hired by a separate service. Strom likens the Bexar case to the administration's effort to narrow the scope of the joint employer definition. Under this definition, a parent company that exerts significant control over the workers at its site is considered to be legally an employer in tandem with the direct contractor of those workers. Strom writes, quote, The Bexar decision goes hand-in-hand hand with the Trump board's efforts to narrow the definition of joint employer. The end result is to let large corporations profit off the labor of workers without incurring any legal obligation toward them. Thanks to Trump's appointees, more and more workers will no longer enjoy basic rights that have long been taken for granted, unquote. Wow, it's almost as if employers are savvy enough about labor law to deliberately make sure that they don't directly hire the workers who are laboring every day on their properties. When we think about the labor movement today, we usually think about workplace struggles and union campaigns here in the U.S., but the global uprisings you've been seeing unfold around the world are a constant reminder for us to look outside of our borders to see the emerging battlegrounds for workers' movements. Our friends at Labor Notes held their first ever conference in Asia in mid-August, bringing together labor organizers and activists from across the continent in Taipei. They discussed everything from the Hong Kong strikes to gender discrimination to the challenges of organizing across global supply chains. I spoke with two of the organizers of the event, Shara Sarkar of Labor Notes and Kevin Lin of International Labor Rights Forum, on what went down and what we here in the U.S. can learn from our comrades halfway around the world. Here's Kevin speaking first. For me, it has been a long-term goal to do a uh, regional conference like this in Asia. Uh, I, I, in, I specifically work, work on China, uh, but also in my organization works uh, a lot in Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia. So, uh, so it's kind of converges, convergence of all this uh, work and interest. Um, but also there just been so much labor organizing in Asia uh, in the last few years, in China, but also in, uh, in much of Southeast Asia. Uh, and we thought, and also in Taiwan, where we held the conference, there was uh, just a very recent uh, strike, successful strike by flight attendants. Uh, in, in Taiwan, and we thought Taiwan uh, would be a really interesting place to host this conference. What was the atmosphere like when you landed in Taiwan? I mean, I guess that was in the middle of massive protests in Hong Kong um, and a lot of sort of unrest in hotspots all over Asia. What were some of the issues that I guess were top of mind when people arrived at the conference? There, there were about 40, I would say about 40 participants from Hong Kong. So, you know, whether they could make to the conference was a big unknown for us, even like two days before the conference. But also, uh, you know, because we, we were obviously very interested in, in the protest in Hong Kong. And a lot of the, actually the participants who were at the conference were themselves protesters. So it was also interesting uh, for them to come at this time. And uh, in fact, um, 
a lot of the groups uh, and individuals uh, who came to the conference from Hong Kong also used these opportunities in Taiwan to engage with the groups in Taiwan uh, to talk about the protests in Hong Kong. What were some of the insights that you gleaned uh, from those actions that were taking place sort of in real time? You know, the level of emotion that was behind a lot of the remarks and um, commentary by delegates from Hong Kong was really palpable. We They had set up um, kind of a solidarity board outside um, in a common space in the, co- in the conference area, and people were writing solidarity messages for the Hong Kong protesters. And it really um, provided a, a focal point for people to kind of unite and rally around at the conference. What was the um, interaction like between the Hong Kong protesters and the other conferees? What were some of the responses of, of people maybe who come from areas where um, you, you you know, massive street uprisings are not as common. So, so we, we featured a speaker from the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, uh, and then you, you just did a podcast with, uh, with, with someone from the Hong Kong CTU. Uh, and so she gave a very powerful uh, keynote speech uh, at the conference. I think there was, uh, it was very emotional. And I think, you know, a lot of people um, from uh, maybe from South and Southeast Asia who did not follow the uh, protest uh, in Hong Kong, you know, got a real sense of the the the, the seriousness of what's happening and also the emotions. Uh, and but most most uh, I think most interesting interactions uh, was between the Hong Kong uh, participants and the, the local Taiwanese participants. Because uh, again, back in back in um, a few years ago. Uh, when, you know, during the Umbrella Movement, there was a lot of comparison with the Sunflower, sunflower Movement in Taiwan. Uh, so there was already a lot of connections that existed between activists in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And I think uh, this time around, there continued to be this uh, strengthening of these connections uh, between the activists in, in, in both places. Uh, that, that was really interesting. And we had a workshop specifically uh, looking at at the protest movements in uh, and labor movement in Hong Kong and Taiwan. My impression was that um, you know with the Hong Kong protest, um, trade unions were not the most uh, sort of were not necessarily at the vanguard of the um, actual protests that are taking place now in the streets. And similarly with the sunflower movement, but am, am I wrong? I mean, has the labor movement sort of been uh, operating kind of parallel to these social movements, but maybe not at the very bleeding edge of them? You, you're right. Uh, in, in both places, uh, the the union movement uh, is pretty marginalized. Uh, they are not at the forefront of these protests. Uh, you know, for example, in Hong Kong, even though uh, the the most recent strike, general strike in Hong Kong, was endorsed by the HKCTU, it was not called. It was not organized by the union. Uh, and the same happened in during the sunflower movement in Taiwan. Labor was a participant, unions participated in, in, in the movement, but again, they were not leading the movement. So I think there was a lot of discussion at the conference and also obviously outside of the conference about the role of unions and, and activist groups, uh, what, what, what they should they be doing? And I think there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of discussion as to what, what could be done. And, and again, strike is something that um, activists and unions in both uh, places I've been thinking a lot about. Were there many interactions between Hong Kongers and, and mainlanders at the conference? I'm curious to, as to how those conversations went. There was a lot of interactions because the groups from Hong Kong that were at the conference 
most of them also work on China on, on Chinese labor issues. So they're already very deeply engaged uh, in labor issues, uh, labor movement in China, in mainland China. So, uh, so you know, it's definitely not something new to them. Um, and, uh, you know, we also had, the, you know, a workshop specifically focused on labor struggle in China. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's a particularly challenging time for, for labor activists in China because of the crackdowns and, and repression uh, over the last year or so. Uh, and again, there's another interesting discussion we had about what to do uh, in terms of labor organizing in China. There have been all sorts of reports about, um, I guess, like differing perspectives on the Hong Kong protests between mainlanders and, and Hong Kongers. Did you see any of those tensions unfold or was there more of a dynamic of solidarity, I guess, between uh, the two sets of countries? There was no, not really any disagreement. Uh, I think for, for layback to us in mainland China, uh, there's overwhelming support for the for the protests in Hong Kong, and I think that's the same. I can say the same for most social movement activists in mainland China. Uh, they're very much in support of the Hong Kong protests. Were there any surprising insights that you gleaned uh, from getting all those people together in a room? I mean, it strikes me that you're bringing together people from, I guess, places with vastly different systems of government whose trade unions enjoy um, really varying levels of autonomy. Were there any interesting discussions that arose from that? One thing that was interesting was that came up um, from the Burmese delegation was the level of militancy in Myanmar right now. There are uh, constant wildcat strikes, and it's not really something that we talk about that much in the United States, but it really is a hotbed of um, labor activism right now. And the impression that I was given is that workers are really fed up with their working conditions and living conditions to the point where they're willing to go on strike at the drop of a hat. Um, There are a lot of parallels, I think, to um, kind of early 20th century, 19th century United States labor activism in that respect. Um, And these are these are people, I guess, are they employed at factories there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Speaking as like a non-expert on, on Myanmar, I mean, I think the impression that most Americans would have is that and it, there's um, quite a lot of uh, political repression there. Um, does the trade union movement enjoy some political autonomy or is it sort of facing similar constraints? And I guess what, what level of risk do those, those militant trade unionists face when they take action? Well, it seems like the, the state hasn't quite figured out how to handle the level of militancy that exists right now. So if you draw a parallel to Cambodia, for instance, where 10 years ago there was this level of militancy and the state found a way to channel that into more bureaucratized union activity and uh, combined with repression of militancy, that hasn't happened yet in Myanmar. Do you expect it to? I, I think it's a matter of opinion. I would be surprised if some kind of response didn't develop from the state. Are there through lines that are developing in, in activism across the different countries that you're um, drawing people from? I mean, can we say that there is an Asian trade union movement ethos developing, or is it just sort of like every country is kind of doing its own thing? I, I think there is still a, a lot of isolation. Um, there are certainly exchanges uh, between unions and activists uh, among a lot of those countries in Asia, but overall, though, uh, I think there is more, you know, sort of isolation uh, and you know, basically unions and, and workers uh, focusing on, on their own organizing within their own border 
and and that's one of the things that we hope to achieve with the conference was to break down some of the barriers and bring activists uh, working maybe along the same issues or in the same sectors together to talk about their organizing and to strategize uh, what to do. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, also a lot of sometimes just just not knowing what's happening elsewhere. Uh, there's so much learning uh, from each other uh, that could be done if uh, only you bring people together uh, in the same space and, and start a conversation about their organizing work. Speaking of isolation, it strikes me that, you know, Labor Notes, one of the reasons you do these types of conferences is um, that you are a media outlet and you sort of serve as an information clearinghouse for the labor movement, in, uh, at least in, in the U.S. What types of communications systems do these unions have at their disposal? Um, is, is there a vibrant <laughs> labor press in any of these countries? I mean, is, is there a way for people to communicate? I and mean, we hear so much these days about how social media is kind of lubricating all of these activist movements, is there an opportunity to build some kind of unified um, or at least um, sort of collective platform uh, for labor um, through technology? I think um, there are some places like in Japan where there's um, kind of an equivalent to labor notes that um, we've worked with for many years. And then there are other places like uh, in Cambodia where there's kind of like an underground radio operation that attempts to do similar things in terms of serving as an information clearinghouse for workers and worker activists. Um, but uh, I don't think there's, um, you know, there, I mean, there definitely isn't something Asia wide. And I don't I don't think that there's uh, strong um, kind of labor notes like presence in most of the. Uh, countries that were represented at the conference. It seems like there's um, the siloing of, of movements in countries that are right next door to each other, um, perhaps, you know, similar in their levels of um, industrial development and also like really closely tied together in supply chains. And I guess I'm just thinking like that seems like there there could be room for a lot of synergy there to, to build. And I guess beyond sort of occasionally gathering for conferences, I guess what, what kind of ongoing linkages can be further developed from this? I think that there are a number of things that could um, kind of be strengthened as we move forward. Um, I know from our end at Labor Notes, you know, the, the contacts we made and the um, relationships that were either developed or strengthened through this are definitely going to um, pay dividends in terms of our labor reporting and um, the work that we do in terms of organizing and in terms of our conference, which is coming up next April. And then I think in terms of in Asia itself, um, it's just going to take a lot more work like this to bring people together and have people connect with one another um, and develop stronger relationships. One thing that was really interesting at the conference that we haven't talked about yet is um, uh, the action that we did. Um, so about 60 to 80 people from the conference went to uh, a facility run by Hanhai, um, which owns, which is affiliated with Foxconn and owns a company called Sharp um, in Japan. And so there were workers uh, from Japan who were targeting Hanhai um, and seeking um, reinstatement and compensation for workers that had lost their jobs. And that kind of cross-border solidarity and um, action is very rare, um, as you know. And uh, it's something that I think could 
further develop as things progress. But I think it will take a lot of um, time and energy put into these networks, which which will eventually have to be self-sustaining in order for them to continue to develop and grow. I think uh, so. I'm most most familiar with with uh, uh, mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, and and in in all of those places, there are small independent media outlets that do a lot of uh, labor report, labor news, and labor reporting. Um, in in mainland China, in particular, uh, there there has been a lot some really good uh, social media accounts uh, that report on on labor. Uh, labor uh, struggles uh, and you know what's happening in terms of labor policy, etc. Uh, and and that has, they have been the target of of crackdown recently. Uh, this uh, labor social media account called iLabor, uh, and they have been doing a, really a huge amount of labor reporting. And most recently, they focused on uh, uh, workers uh, with silicosis. And as a result of not only their reporting but also their 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 practical support for those uh, workers, uh, the three editors were arrested, detained, and they're still detained right now as we speak. Um, but for, for the most part, the the, the sort of labor uh, media uh, in in at least in East Asia are are very small. Uh, I think they would benefit a lot from uh, uh, communication actions with each other. And I just want to just mention one another one other thing. Uh, that you know the the labor notes uh, book, the secrets of a successful organizer, which is a really great training menu, uh, has been translated into both Chinese and Japanese, and it had been had, had and had been used by by, by unions and activists in uh, China, in Hong Kong, and uh, in Japan. So I think that that's been you know something that's great uh, to facilitate those kind of uh, exchanges. The weakness of the labor movement in these various countries. To what extent is it uh, the result of like direct uh, government uh, repression, um, or, or to what extent is it just simply that there isn't um, enough momentum for um, whatever reason, sort of in terms of their organizing power, their uh, reach as institutions? To me, it's both. Uh, in some of the countries where uh, uh, there is uh, there exists uh, very severe state repression. Uh, the people who do those kind of critical labor reporting are often the target of those repression. Um, but in countries where there is actually freedom uh, of press, uh, for example, in Taiwan, the, the challenge is, is, is very often the weakness of the labor movement that could not support uh, labor press. So you have those very small independent um, media um, that, do great labor reporting, but they don't have any resources and survive mostly on, on donations. With everything that's going on in current politics, can we glean anything from the conference about how globalization and development, um, those dialogues are playing out within the trade union movements across Asia? I mean, do you have a general sense of what the mood is towards globalization and towards internationalism um, from that perspective. I think, you know, a lot of the, the countries in, uh, in Asia face some of the same uh, dynamics of globalization. Uh, it could be uh, the, you know, a lot of groups in Southeast Asia and also in China, uh, they have uh, those suppliers of, for, for global brands. Uh, and and their conditions are very similar because uh, they're at the, at the very bottom of the global supply chain, 
Uh, so they suffer from very low wages, uh, a very rampant uh, abuse of labor rights, and very weak implementa- implementation and enforcement of labor laws. And so you, you have very similar dynamics, and, and you ha- also have the similar sectors. For example, garment is a sector that, uh, that exists in, in multiple countries in the region. That's one thing. Another thing that is relatively new is, is Chinese investment, uh, Chinese overseas investment. And we have a, a session specifically on, on that. We are still at a stage where, where we're trying to understand what's happening and the impact of Chinese investments, say, in Southeast Asia, in places like Burma or Cambodia. What are, is there anything different about Chinese investments and how do you actually organize uh, around uh, Chinese investment? And that, that's something that a lot of the, lot of the groups uh, at the conference were, were really, really interested in. I'm curious as to how views of the U.S. and views of China and their role in um, sort of uh, setting the the tenor of, of international trade and, and the power that these two economies have. So the, the, the main thing that I, I got from the conference, from a lot of the discussion, is how how people are not nationalistic in their view. You know, you have all this... Uh, well, I think two levels. You have, you know, the the question of the role of China in, in the region, all those territorial disputes uh, and uh, political conflicts in the region between China and some of the Southeast Asian countries, and also between Taiwan with Taiwan. Um, and you also, of course, had the U.S.-China rivalry. Um, but what you get from the conference is people are not at all nationalistic. Uh, the, the activists and, and unions are really very much for internationalism. And, and that's why you know, we had such amazing discussion because people did not see the, uh, the labor rights issues and trades and, uh, as, as a nationalistic or, or national issue. They very much see them as part of the you know, global process of globalization, of neoliberal globalization. And, uh, and they, see, you know, they see in each other a shared struggle uh, rather than you know, uh, 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 you know problems or, or conflicts between nations. Yeah, I can't emphasize strongly enough how true that is. Like while the conference was happening, there was this dispute between Korea and Japan happening over uh, over trade, and you wouldn't have any sense that that was actually going on at the conference itself because. Um, labor activism is such an important vehicle for promoting internationalism. And I think that that was really on display at the conference. Yes. Um, it's important to bear in mind, I guess, at this time of really heightened nationalism that we see, you know, particularly in Asia, but I guess all around the world. Were there any conversations that you thought were particularly um, interesting? I mean, I think when I was going through the agenda, I flagged gender and, and women's rights as, as one strand of conversation, as well as um, occupational health and safety. I think one thing that was really eye-opening was how widespread um, gender rights violations really are. I mean, we all know that that's the case, but um, to actually see people present from all of these different countries speaking to the to similar issues or uh, in some cases the same issues in their workplaces is um, it was really eye-opening. Yeah, in terms of what types of issues, sexual harassment, different norms for male employees and female employees, wage differentials, uh, those sorts of um, issues that we're familiar with um, and that we encounter in the United States. And we definitely encounter in looking at the international context that 
more frequently comes to the attention of the United States, like in Latin America. But uh, those issues are all present in um, in in the delegations that were represented at the conference itself. Mm-hmm. You also had people from uh, Sharps, which is the South Korean organization that has been mobilizing against Samsung, um, particularly on issues of toxics in the workplace. And now you actually see that same pattern unfolding in um, Samsung supply chains all around Asia to an even worse extent, perhaps, than what we saw in South Korea. Globalization, I guess, the, the way it moves is that there's kind of rolling race to the bottom in, in some sad ways. How does that play out in terms of just you know workplace standards and sort of the material conditions of workers? Where is the bottom in that? And what is the role of the labor movement in providing some sort of backstop? I think that, I mean, the conference itself was focused on organizing and developing organizing responses to these kinds of abuses um, and the structural factors that you're talking about. And so... Um, one of the things that from a labor note side that we were trying to do was to provide people with tools that they could take back to their own context and um, make them applicable to the struggles that they're participating in. Um, Because there are going to be differences in terms of what is going on in Cambodia versus what's going on in Burma. In some places, there's exclusive representation of unions. Some places, there's not, for example. But uh, at the end of the day, organizing is organizing. And um, we really saw in the level of um, participation and the level of engagement that people had that at least among the participants who were at the conference, that there's really a hunger for um, these kinds of tools to push back against the kinds of developments that you're talking about. Yeah, I want to, I, I think, you know, people realize there's nothing new happening. Uh, you know, a lot of the investments, uh, uh, you know, factories in China have been in recent years moved into uh, Southeast Asia, and the process, you know, has been continuing for for decades. Uh, it used to be that you know those fa- factories are owned by uh, by Japanese companies, some are by South Korean companies, some by Taiwanese companies, and they invested in in mainland China. And now those companies are investing in Southeast Asia, and you see the same labor conditions reproduced. As you said, you know, they are always looking for cheap labor, less regulation, um, a, a government that, that is willing to turn blind eye to labor abuse. So the, the basic, you know, labor conditions are reproduced in each of those countries. And what you see is a, a lot of commonality in struggle. So as Sharf said, you know, even though there are a lot of country-specific contexts, right, different laws, different labor histories, uh, different level, degree of, of political freedom, and freedom to organize, uh, but you know, be, beneath all that is the basic question of organizing, and that question is the same, I think, in China, in Hong Kong, in Cambodia, uh, you know, and in the U.S. So that that's something that is that is cut across uh, cultural or, or, or national context, and that's why I think uh, a lot of people got a lot out of the conference uh, because you know we centered the conference on the question of organizing. Yeah, I, I guess I feel like I have to ask this as the perfunctory question. I mean, did did anyone talk about the, the U.S. and and Donald Trump, or was this like a refreshing um, occasion to like get away from the news cycle in the U.S.? I don't know. No, it, it was uh, it was good to to sort of turn your attention back to what matters, which is the the workplace organizing, rather than just like what the what the latest tweets, uh, what is the latest uh, scandal that that 
that your you know your president or prime minister just committed and i think that that's again important uh thing to to remember um when you know our attention span and our you know media um uh, gets so much focused on uh stuck on the latest uh presidential issue where we lose sight of the 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 way in which you actually build power which is workplace organizing and so that's what we focus on at the conference uh and uh i think we you know we were all better for it <laughs> one is i think the, the importance of for for labor movement in the u.s to pay attention to to labor struggle elsewhere um i think asia um tends to be a blind spot uh, there are certain countries that uh the american labor movement pays more attention um especially when there's a trade agreement you 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 pay you tend to pay more attention to the countries uh, that have a trade agreement with, with the U.S. Um, but uh, I think beyond that, there's a lot of learning, mutual learning uh, between the American labor movement and, and the labor movements in Asia uh, about how to organize workers in very, very difficult situations. And I always sort of say, you know, you think your that the organizing conditions in your own country is, is challenging until you actually look at another country that has much worse organizing conditions and you see the the labor organizers are still doing their organizing uh they're facing regular not just harassment uh uh or, or detention they may be facing the threat of 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 injury and, and death and they're still doing the organizing and i think that gives you uh just more confidence and, and inspiration and also just more uh, uh perspective uh so that's one thing uh, and the other thing is, I think that the impo- it's the importance of uh, international labor solidarity, and I think that's that's again, uh, labor movement has to be international, and and we all have to be internationalists. Uh, we cannot only focus on our own struggle in our own country, uh, however important. Uh, I think we always need to look uh, 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 beyond our borders and and build uh, connections and lines alliance with with workers uh, movement uh, elsewhere uh, and that's that's so important uh, and and that's what the work that we are both uh, my organization myself and, and sheriff and labor nodes have been doing uh, and I think you know people should be paying more attention uh, to to labor worker struggle elsewhere and try to build a connection with with the activists there and that was Kevin Lin of International Labor Rights Forum and Sharaf Sarkar of labor notes talking about the labor notes conference in Asia. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. This week for ARG, I'm talking about a piece from friend of the show, Lena Salo, at the New Republic, titled The Scourge of Worker Wellness Programs. Does your boss incentivize you losing weight through weird contests? The teachers in West Virginia famously cited the demand for them to wear Fitbits to work and answer invasive personal questions or face increased health care premiums as a key reason that they went on strike across the state. But worker wellness programs are a much more common problem than you might know. Lena writes that one survey found 82% of large companies and 53% of small companies have some sort of wellness program that either levies fines or promises incentives for exercise. She notes, quote, 
Though management typically peddles wellness programs to workers as generous perks, they are actually a way for employers to save money. The Affordable Care Act allows employers to incentivize participation in wellness programs. The savings come through guidelines that, until recently, allowed employers to tie 30% of premiums for individuals and 50% for smokers to participation in those programs. This effectively amounts to a fine, sometimes thousands of dollars steep, for those who don't participate, end quote. That's right, this is perhaps another problem of employer-provided health care. Lena continues, quote, The rise of the worker wellness program, along with the visceral backlash to it, has revealed the limits and small humiliations of this neoliberal approach to health care. It offers an implicit contrast and argument for a more humane strengthening of the social safety net, while demanding a worker collective worker-based response to the various ways employers affect our daily well-being, end quote. Of course, in being worried about employees' wellness, employers are not offering extra breaks, flexible scheduling, better conditions, or more time off. Their concern for health effects on productivity, after all, only goes so far. After that, you just replace the worker. So what to do about this? One approach, Lena writes, is obvious. Quote, one blunt approach would be to eliminate employer-sponsored insurance entirely. Wellness programs are the logical conclusion of a system that, instead of treating health care as a basic human right, funnels issues of health and well-being into a narrow, unforgiving, econometric rubric. Health care in this country would be simpler and more humane if employers were simply removed from the equation. End quote. But even with single-payer health care, employers would still have a lot of control over their employees' health, she notes. And in that way, all workplace issues are health issues and vice versa. Quote, when it comes to health care, we are not just talking about insurance coverage. We are also, by definition, agitating for a living wage, a reasonable balance between work and life, a more humane world. My pick for ARG is The Danger Epidemic in Art Handling by Zachary Small at Hyperallergic. This is perhaps an unconventional pick for a labor story, but it does focus on workers doing a rather unconventional job. These are the folks who bring us the art exhibits at the center of the rarefied world of museums and galleries. They're handling one-of-a-kind works, priceless treasures that must be treated with absolute care, and yet the workers who handle these precious objects are often treated as invisible. Hyperallergic took a deep dive into the art handling industry to unearth some of the ugly violence and physical hazards that percolate below the seamless surfaces of New York's art scene. The five-part series, and I admit here that I write this before part five is published, traces the stories of several art handlers who have been bruised, battered, and sometimes catastrophically maimed on the job. Often they're doing pretty standard manual labor, moving heavy objects, lifting, handling, and installing displays. And their jobs are pretty much like a lot of other jobs. The industry is both a reflection of the freewheeling yet intimate nature of the art world and the rough precariousness of other workaday blue-collar jobs in the city. Yet in many ways, these workers embody a unique struggle to be recognized as real, flesh-and-blood human beings on the job. And gallery bosses often cut corners when it comes to personal safety. They're also quick to distance themselves from their handlers when they suffer injuries, which leaves many workers without the medical care or basic respect they need to fully recover from an injury. One story of Ricardo Gonzalez, an art handler who falls down an elevator shaft, is particularly cutting. Quote, As they rode the elevator, something began to buckle. Gonzalez heard the gears jam up and the lights went. Suddenly... The lift plummeted six floors down the elevator shaft of a gallery's building with books and people flying into the air until gravity took over. When they reached the ground floor, Gonzalez was miraculously uninjured. His co-worker, however, had suffered from a broken collarbone and hurt ankle. He was rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. Once Gonzalez returned to the gallery, he took a moment to tell staffers about what happened. The first thing his co-workers asked was the art okay, unquote. 
So why is it that workers are so often treated as if they are worth less than the service or the objects they produce? In the case of art, it's understandable that handling a massively expensive painting or sculpture is a high-stakes job, and so a gallery owner might understandably be very concerned about a piece being damaged. But why does that come at the expense of the worker, who has damaged himself just to lift that object up four flights of stairs? Small writes, quote, Professional relationships are difficult to navigate in every industry, but the competitive nature of the art world urges workers to feel privileged for any job, no matter the compensation. There is an incentive to stay silent, and some art handlers who spoke to hyperallergic would not go on the record for fear of retaliation. Nevertheless, virtually all workers said they would like to see substantial improvements to the health and safety standards of their organizations, unquote. Art handling, in many ways, mirrors some of the old guild system, with tight networks of galleries and artists knitted together by various specialized assistants who make it all happen. Some art handlers are artists themselves and just want to have a day job in the arts. But their craft is also increasingly subjected to modern-day pressures, including degraded conditions in the service sectors. The pressure to speed up work and the downplaying of safety concerns in order to get more done faster. And in the backdrop is the snowballing inequality between, on the one hand, the institutions, dealers, and celebrity artists who make jaw-dropping sums of money at the top of the art world hierarchy, and on the other hand, the laborers at the bottom who grapple with dangerous work conditions, unfair wages, and union busting. Small points out that the art handlers are typically working as permalancers, with no guaranteed job benefits, and they're not considered actual employees, so they have extremely limited labor protections under federal law. Many of them don't know how to file an Occupational Safety and Health Administration complaint and don't know who to turn to if they are injured or subjected to dangerous conditions unfairly. Small writes, quote, Many art handlers that Hyperallergic spoke to reported that they regularly worked more than 60 hours per week. In extreme cases, some reported that employers asked them to work no less than 100 hours per week, including workers at Sotheby's, who told Hyperallergic that failing to meet that hourly benchmark at the company would trigger disciplinary actions from management, unquote. There's also a history of union busting in this industry, one that reflects the racial divisions in the white-dominated art world. Not surprisingly, a big lockout of union workers a few years ago at Sotheby's led to the marginalization of a largely black and Latinx workforce, and that meant yet another setback for an art world that has struggled in recent years to make itself more responsible and accessible to communities of color. There's an upshot here, though. Art handlers are forming communities and building solidarity. Hyperallergic describes the phenomenon of Art Handler Magazine, which brings humor and witty insight into the gallery underground. And across the art world, frontline workers at galleries and museums like the Guggenheim are now forging staff unions. These workers are steadily building an identity as an integral part of the art world, and the more visible they are to us as consumers of art, the more we strive to see the humans who make the experience of art possible, and the more our relationship with that art is deepened. Artistic creativity, after all, speaks to the core of our humanity, and the places where we experience art should be humane to everyone who sets foot inside, whether they come in through the front door or through the service entrance. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Tune in in another two weeks. In the meantime, you can browse all of our archives at descentmagazine.org. You can also become a sustaining member and support us every month. And thanks as always to Natasha for making us sound good. If you have any feedback or have any show ideas, you can email them to us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And of course, if you are a gig economy worker struggling for a fair day's pay, or if you're an auto worker struggling to hold on to your job, or if you're struggling to organize a workplace in Asia, do we have any listeners in Asia? We want to hear from you. Hashtag belabored on Twitter. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.